Alright, welcome to back to the Nerd Files. Today... <laughs> as Tom Meows. Today's special day, uh, since there's an election coming up tomorrow, today is the first annual Nerd Debate. And I chose five, I guess, subjects, questions for Tom and Robert today. Let's clarify that. Oh, no, no. You picked the hardest fucking questions you could have asked us and then said, here you go, just pick one. When yep. anyone could have had like 17 answers. Yep, it's going to be a tough one, but it's going to be a fun episode. I'm interested to see what these guys have come up with. And it's all stuff that we've talked about earlier on the podcast in early episodes, at least subject-wise. Um, at least once. So, all right, you guys. Well, let's inter let's introduce the contestants. We have Tom, as always, with me, and then we have Robert on the Monday show. How are you, guys? Yo. All right. So, should we get this uh, debate going? Sure. Yeah. All right. The first question I have for you guys: What's who's the best DC character? In your opinion? Well, as mine, my favorite character likes to stand on formalities in certain occasions. I do believe I'll let the floor go to Tom first. All right. I think the best DC character is Batman. Batman is unique in the superhero canon. His stories are based on psychology. They have ties to Lovecraft, all sorts of classic literature. You can do so much with Batman. Tons of writers get their start writing for Batman. Alan Moore, Frank Miller have all done Batman. Um, Ed Browbaker, you know, just tons of people have worked with the character. Fuck. Um, That's a good opening statement. You want us to? Be, you don't have to yeah, defend just, yourself right I now. Yeah, I think that is the opening statement. So, Robert, your opening statement and your choice is. I was going to say, do I get a rebuttal first? Or not, yet, not yet. Not yet. Yeah, not yet. We'll rebuttal next. Okay. Well, <clears throat> what really is a good hero without a good villain? My favorite DC character is the Joker. The Clown Prince of Crime is without a doubt one of the most iconic figures in all of comic books. I will say that he is probably responsible for some of the most some of my most favorite comic book moments period between uh, the death of Robin or Jason Todd excuse me um, as well as the beginning into the uh, the uh, injustice gods among us. So, without Joker, there's no reason for Batman. All right, let's start I, uh, the rebuttal round. Tom, would you like to rebuttal? Right. I would say that not only is there a Batman without the Joker, there's no need for Joker without Batman. In The Dark Knight Returns, when Batman has been gone for years... The Joker has become quiet and does nothing because there's no one to play against. Whereas Batman, in multiple continuities, 
They don't need the Joker. Like he he can come and go as he pleases. Even in fact, in the uh, Batman '89, the Joker died, but they kept going. They had three more movies after that without Joker in it. They continued. Christopher Nolan continued his Dark Knight trilogy without Heath Ledger. Completed it. You don't technically need the Joker. He is a great foil to Batman. I admit that. But Batman has a lot of other characters that he can face off against. He has one of the most extensive rogue galleries in comics. And Batman can face, you know, Two-Face, the Penguin, anybody else. There's a lot of other people. Robert, do you have a response? Do. Um, for as many continuities as there is that Batman goes on without the Joker, there's also quite a few out there where he goes completely crazy. Um, going off the video game universe, the Arkham Asylum to Arkham Knight to, uh, or excuse me, Arkham City to uh, uh, Arkham Knight, uh, when he loses the Joker, he still sees the Joker because he's so used to that. Um, also, um, yes, he does have an extensive rogue gallery, but none to the scale of Joker. Um, you know, Two-Face will rob a bank, he'll kill a couple people, two probably. But at the end of the day, Joker goes for entire populations. There is no one on Batman's rogue gallery that even mildly compares to Joker's successful kill count, impactful kill count, and just outlandish ways of pulling off. I mean, fucking poison flying fish that shoot gas? I mean, and the other rebuttal that I had was Batman's uniqueness, okay? He is a highly trained, highly skilled, highly teched out playboy. You know how many of those we have in the DC universe? About four. Uh, Oliver Queen, uh, if you want me to flip over to Iron, uh, to Iron Man in the Marvel universe. He's not that unique. He is the darkest of that list that I just gave off, but even... Some of his greatest feats, like defeating Superman, Green Arrow's done that. Um, and some of his, uh, I mean, as far as extensive rogue galleries go, Iron Man's got that in spades. Batman is one of the most iconic things out there. But people have taken what he's done and done it a little better. All right, uh, okay. my turn? Yeah, do you have another argument for that? Yes, I do. When I said Batman was unique, I was not thinking of a playboy going out and fighting crime. Obviously, there's a lot of those. I was thinking of the psychological nature. Batman's story is tied with psychology, with madness. No other character in comics, at least superhero comics, do they deal with that. That's what I meant when I said he was unique. As far as the Joker targeting large portions of populations yes he does that but he usually chooses methods that are you know kind of ridiculous and like you know it, they're overly elaborate whereas batman actually has i would say another villain who you know <laughs> is more effective and has less elaborate plans 
and who is smarter than the Joker. And I would say that's Ra's al Ghul. Ra's al Ghul, even in Batman Begins, targets the entire Gotham City and almost succeeds in destroying it, whereas the Joker doesn't, even within that those film series. So I would say that the Joker, although a very iconic villain, is perhaps not the best villain for Batman. Wow. Robert, do you have anything to say to that? Um, yeah. You want to talk about psychological, you want to talk about badness, where do you think the majority of that comes from? I mean, who else does he really have to play mind games with? Yes, he has to figure out the, the puzzles of the Riddler. Yes, he has to try to figure out how to get past the heart of ice of Mr. Freeze. But with the Joker, you have to get inside his head. And that is a scary fucking place in any medium that he has been seen in where Batman tries to get inside the head of the Joker and do his thing, his psychological treatment that he takes for most of his people. Batman almost loses it going in there. And as far as being too elaborate, yeah, the Joker has a sense of style that is unlike any other character in any medium that I've ever seen. Yes, sometimes it's the flying fish, but sometimes it's just having that little bit of gas right there on that flower on that lapel. That as soon as somebody gets in close to pound his face in like, a, oh, say Batman might want to do, it's over. And he wanted it to be that way. And finally, films are not the only medium. My argument against Rachel Gould is that, honestly, he was not that big until the film, until the Dark, uh, until the dark Knight. So Joker has been around and done more in every single medium than arguably I'd say even Batman. Batman saves the day. Yes, he's killed the Joker. Sometimes he saved the Joker, but honestly, the Joker has just been in any medium he's been in. He's been a force to be reckoned with. And finally, the only reason Joker was quiet in Dark Knight Return and uh, Dark Knight Rises is because Heath Ledger wasn't around. I wonder what kind of movie we would have ended up with had he been alive. Really, if it would have been an entirely different movie, I don't think Joker would have been. Um, I don't think Joker would have been quiet at all had Heath Ledger been alive. But I think you would have had a completely different movie uh, for one thing, and that's all because of the Joker. Okay. All right. Final arguments? Sure. Um, In terms of madness in Batman, you have another character that we haven't mentioned that I would say actually shows the madness of Batman better, and that's Scarecrow. Scarecrow is a psychologist, uses fear toxin to drive people insane, show them their greatest fear. I say that covers madness perhaps even better than the Joker. Ra's al Ghul actually defeated the Justice League in Justice League, the Tower of Babel. So to say he didn't do that much in the comics, he's an immortal, uh, <laughs> basically. I mean, he, as long as he goes into the Lazarus pit in the comics, he's alive forever. Um, so to say that you know he hasn't done as much as the Joker, I, I, I don't think that's a valid argument. 
Robert, final argument? Well, I only have two. Number one, um, Scarecrow, that's fear, not madness. That's why Scarecrow makes such an effective yellow lamp. There's a big difference. Yes, his, his fear-inducing gas and toxins can bring someone to the edge and break them, but Batman gets over it pretty easily. Um, he's taken injections that, uh, quote, Scarecrow should take down 10 men and still gotten away from it. Um, and my only other thought is you're making a lot of arguments for other villains and not really why Batman is the important part of it. You, you, you made, you know, you brought in Scarecrow, you brought in Rachel Gould, but the fact of the matter is Joker trumps him and he makes Batman what he is. He is probably... Well, actually, if you believe uh, to go with certain canons, he is the reason Batman is who he is, because he's the one who killed his fucking parents. So, I hate to say it, there is no Batman without Joker. Joker drives him on. All right, was that it? Can I make one last point? Should we do one more, one more round of points? Should we? Uh, well... I feel I pretty good about it. Okay. Tom, your argument... Uh, good pickup on the uh, Babel citing, or citing that comic against Robert's uh, argument of Raja Ghoul. Um, I would have liked to have heard more of his like detective skills, as well as his psychology... Um, and Robert, you should have used Harley Quinn as an example of how maybe Joker has created other characters and his importance in the DC, uh, universe. thought that was a big point you missed. I also missed that there's the two Batman I, movies. Fair, huh? I said, to be fair, I was arguing Joker, not Joker and Harley. That's true. But... Joker did create Harley Quinn, essentially. Um, where, also, I feel like you missed out was, like, the two most popular Batman movies the Joker has stolen the show over Batman. Like, people went to see The Dark Knight because of Joker. Like, because of Heath Ledger. Um, so I'm going to give it to Batman. <laughs> so Tom gets a point. I was not sure which way you were going to go on that one, so. <laughs> no, I think you got him on the Raja Gould. That was a big, uh, big moment. Oh, yeah. All right. All right, round two. Best anime of all time. Let's go with Robert this time. We'll start it out with opening choices, and then we'll go into the arguments. Um, my uh, favorite anime of all time will go to uh, Yu Yu Hakusho. Um, it is the first one I ever watched. Um, as far as mainstream, it is not the most popular out there. Um, but 
it is one of the things that broke. You uh, said Yu-Gi-Oh. No, I said Yu-Yu Hakusho. Yu-Yu Hakusho. Um, as far as importance go, it is one of the first animes to bring English dubbed anime to uh, an American uh, audience. Not the first, but one of the uh, first. Okay. Right. Tom, what is your choice? Avatar The Last Airbender. This is an American anime, so it's copying some of the styles from traditional anime. You have a whole world that it's built. There's four different nations that each are able to... Uh, certain people within those nations are able to harness earth, wind, fire, water. Um, basically, the Fire Nation has taken over, and um, there's one figure, the Avatar, who can harness the power of all four of them. So we're following the journey of an 11-year-old child who has to, you know, master the four elements and save the world. So not only is it a great anime, and not only does it have a developed world, great characters, you have these great fantasy connections, World War II allegories. You have all sorts of great things going on. You have stories of friendship in with the overall story of, you know, uh, fighting against evil, doing whatever you can, living up to what's expected of you, um, and but doing it in your own way. And I think it's a really great story, and I think it's a fantastic anime. Okay, Robert, do you have a uh, rebuttal? An argument thought, against Tom's? I thought we did opening statements and then rebuttals afterwards. You did your oh, job. Yeah, you went oh, first, son. <laughs> you, you, Hakusho. Um, yeah. Um, I respect that opinion. Um, I agree with it. Um, mostly, actually. Um, however, you, Hakusho did it first. Um, you, Hakusho, uh, took us to the demon realm. It took us uh, to spirit worlds. It brought us characters that, like Kuwabara, where we found, uh, you know, a character that was kind of a, a leader of a street gang, but was in love with kittens and could make a sword appear out of nowhere. And as far as character development goes, I mean, we started with uh, Yusuke Urameshi, the social outcast that nobody liked because he was capable of kicking the shit out of anybody walk across. Saving a child from being um, hit by a, run, by a car, giving his own life in the process. Um, to a wandering spirit, to a spirit detective, to the half-demon uh, son of a demon king, to the champion of the demon and human world, to back to uh, a high school student who's capable of shooting a bullet out of his fingertip made of pure energy. Um, okay. But, well, sorry. No, no, go so ahead. I, my, my final part of this is that, you know, before things like Yu Yu Hakusho, um, Avatar didn't really have a formula to go off of. I mean, they could translate something from Japanese culture, but 
things like DBZ, Yu Yu Hakusho, Sailor Moon, where Avatar got all of its points and all of its ideas from, uh, between the control over elements and different realms and stuff like that, that came from the same class as Yu Yu Hakusho. Okay. Well said. Tom, what's your uh, uh, argument? Uh, well, I have not seen your show. Um, but it seems like there's just a little too much going on. It sounds like the story has become very muddled, like you have to buy a lot of different things, which you do with Avatar The Last Airbender as well. But it sounds like there's a lot more that you have to you know, just buy. Whereas Avatar is more centered around a group of three friends. You just need to buy their that weird you just have to buy their world. You don't have to buy like, oh, they're gonna become a ghost that like shoots bullets out of their fingers. Like that's not gonna just happen like halfway through. The rules are established up front. You only get need the one big buy. And that's really what you get in storytelling is one big buy. Uh, up front so i mean i feel like if you're asking an audience to sit through a show and enjoy it i think they would probably enjoy avatar more than having to be i think they would find it funny when that sort of thing happened which might not be the intention of the the author okay robert do you have any uh, rebuttal to that or any more argument you want to make yeah um, with Avatar, you kind of have to buy into an entire culture, is my argument on that. Um, I mean, it makes you have to go for reincarnation, first and foremost, um, between uh, a, a pantheon of former Avatars, as I recall, um, each being uh, reborn from uh, each taking the next element or something like that, um, but mastering all four, if I recall the show. Um, then you have to deal with um, war going on between, as, uh, as I recall, the start of the show is between the water and the fire nations. Uh, you have to deal with like this 10-year-old kid that enjoys riding around on a little air pocket is going to be the savior of a universe. <laughs> or uh, of the entire uh, of your entire show um, and as far as like expansive I mean um, Yu Yu Hakusho lasted had um, three major story arcs you had the, the, um, the spirit detective uh, story arc the uh, origin you had the uh, the four beast kings, and you had um, the dark tournament. Um, someone could argue for the the demon realm stuff, but um, it just didn't have as much impact as everything else did. Um, Yu Yu Hakusho is about four people, um, two form uh, two uh, two former rivals slash friends who have kind of the basic powers in this universe. I mean. Um, as far as the uh, spirit gun, uh, Yusuke Yurameshi's, uh the titular character's uh, primary weapon, um, that is considered almost basic compared to some of these other people who are half-demons and can summon fiery dragons of hell. Uh, 
which goes to one of his teammates later on named Hie. Um, oh, yeah. And the, uh, the uh, tough, blind fighter, totally a ripoff from Yu Yu Hakusho. Tom. Uh, Shit. I thought that was the last one. Um, <laughs> um, they may, Avatar may have ripped off from Yu-Gi-Oh! Hakusha, but maybe they did it better, you know? Like they could have. I don't know. I haven't seen your show. <laughs> Give us a final argument as why Avatar is... The greatest, the best anime of all time. Well, okay. I mean, this is awful because I, I might actually throw the question saying this, but I, I'm not hugely into anime. Um, so what appealed to me about Avatar The Last Airbender is that it plays a lot on fantasy tropes rather than um, some anime things. And so for me, that was the gateway into it. So I, I would argue that it's better for a more casual fan to get into anime uh, rather than, you know, having to watching Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, whatever it's called, um, <laughs> because you kind of have to jump in with both feet and like, you know, it, for an anime fan, you know, it, it might be better. I don't know. But, you know, for a more casual fan who's looking to get into anime, I think Avatar The Last Airbender is a better bet. All right, Robert, you want to say one short little final thing about Yu Yu Hakusho? Well, um, being the anime fan that I am, I do have the benefits of both shows. Um, and so I will say there's a reason that I own all of the uh, Yu Yu Hakusho DVDs, and I don't own a single Airbender one. And finally... Uh, I'm having a little trouble remembering two of the characters' names. Um, can you give me the brother-sister that travel around with Aang real fast? Uh, Katara Saka. Katara Saka? Okay, thank you. Uh, anytime Zuko, Aang, Katara, and Saka want to come down to the Dark Tournament, Toya, Kurama, Hiei, and Yusuke will blow them out of the water. All right. So based on the arguments... Um, Tom, you did kind of concede a little bit in those last two arguments. When you, but you haven't seen Yu Hakusho, I haven't either. But based on the arguments, Yu Hakusho wins because if it's a trail, it's a trailblazer. Um, it was one of the first to be dubbed in English. Um, it's it sounds like it set the formula for an Avatar or any of the anime after it. Am I wrong, Robert, or am I? Well, like I said, it, that first real class of anime to get dubbed was like uh, Yu Yu Hawk, DBZ, and Sailor Moon. I mean, two of those things are household names. Um, and to original people like myself, it's just diehard fans love Yu Yu Hakusho too. All right, so Robert gets a point. It's one to one. All right, round three. What is the best Star Wars film? And we'll start with Robert, with your opening statement. Or wait, should we start with Tom? Tom was uh, okay. Yeah, because Robert was first last time. 
All right. The best Star Wars film ever is The Empire Strikes Back. There's no contest. Empire Strikes Back improves upon the original. It differentiates itself from it. It becomes darker. We get to see Luke being trained as a Jedi for the first time. We meet Yoda. We get Luke versus Darth Vader, which is an epic lightsaber fight. And Luke loses a hand. We get the reveal that Darth Vader is Luke's father. Uh, we get um, we get the deepening relationship between Han and Leia. We get uh, we get Lando. Lando is introduced for the first time in this movie. It's just. It's an epic movie. It's fantastic. Also, structurally, as the end of Act 2, it isn't afraid to end on a somber note. Han is trapped in Kryptonite and sent to Jabba's palace. Luke lost a hand, found out his greatest adversary is his own father, um, learned that his mentors lied to him. I mean, that's a dark ending, but that's what it needs to be for the end of Act 2. It's an absolutely fantastic film. Everything works. Every scene is necessary. Every scene is fantastic. Robert. Um, I changed up on you a little bit there, Tom. On, um, I'm gonna go with um, episode four, A New Hope. Um. Okay. My argument is that's where you see him training for um, the first time as a Jedi with the little ball and the helmet. Uh, I think um, the destruction of the Death Star, uh, the original primary one, goes under uh, one of the most um, iconic things in film history. And I like that um, all the characters seem important, which later episodes, it kind of focuses in more on Luke, which I'm not saying is a bad thing uh, or the wrong thing for the movie, but you kind of have a little more um, from everybody in the first film. I mean, you go from, you have Leia going from the, the captive uh, royalty, showing you that she's actually a bit of a badass with a gun herself. Um you have Han Solo showing that he actually has a bit of a heart uh, towards the end in the final scene of the, uh, the run uh, with the X-Wings. Um, the droids are even important. I mean, hell, R2-D2 saves uh, them rushing back. Um, so that's, uh, my, that, that's good enough, actually. Tom, you got a rebuttal? What is the most iconic thing about Star Wars? The lightsaber fights. It just is. That's the thing. That's the major toy that's sold. That's the thing people remember. That's the thing that people rank. There's actual rankings of what is the best lightsaber fight. And Luke versus Vader, the climax of Empire, the first, the first Luke versus Vader, is a fantastic lightsaber fight. That's where it becomes a cultural phenomenon. That's where... You see this insane thing happening, and it's awesome. There is a lightsaber fight in A New Hope, but it's kind of just two old guys poking at each other with, with rods. Um, so I would argue that 
Empire just kind of improves upon the <coughs> themes started in Star Wars. There's far more character development. We're allowed to go darker and have a slower pace. We have an epic lightsaber fight at the end. And yes, the the death, the blowing up of the Death Star is cool, but I think that Vader versus Luke is a more impactful climax. I think it's more personal. I think rather than having all of these random people around that, you know, you don't really care when they die, um, it's focused on two people that you care about deeply. And then you get the reveal that Vader is Luke's father, which is one of the greatest film twists in history. Robert, for A New Hope. Well, you know, when you're building a pyramid, you need a good base. And as you've been saying your last couple arguments, it merely improved upon what was already there. You have to have something pretty great to keep it standing. Now, my argument against your two old people poking each other with a stick. You're talking about compressed energy that can kill you in one swipe. I think you'd be a little bit careful with it yourself, especially if you were getting on in years. However, however, I think that one's a little more important because that one gives you the, the true power of the Jedi to become part of the force itself. Um, and honestly, uh, watching star Wars growing up, uh, I'm 50-50. Like, I think that you're. I think you're right that it is the 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 Vader is the father reveal is without a doubt uh, one of the greatest twists in history. I concede that. But it's not like we hadn't seen something like that before. I mean, we have the the psycho uh, mother reveal being uh, Norman Bates as uh, a chicken as a guy in a wig. Um, I mean, they took pieces of what was already done um, for a very small budget. Um, and then you have my finale, my Death Star. Have you ever before then seen anything like that on what they did it on? I mean, just the fast-paced action, just the, the feeling of being right there as he's going down this incredible just tunnel of death where one false move is going to destroy you. And then he says, oh, fuck it, I don't even need the targeting computer. Are you, oh, so, okay, are you, yeah. are you done? All right, cool. All right. <laughs> so, to Obi-Wan being absorbed into the force. I think that was a very weird cop out that they threw into that movie that seemed like a cheat to have a main character die, but then, you know, just kind of be around. Um, Obi-Wan's character throughout 
uh, the original trilogy is kind of a dick for no reason. And that's just kind of because of rewrites. And that's, that's especially where you see it as his character where it's like, Oh, we got to change this. Well, we want just being a dick for no reason. Um, and I think him dying was kind of being a dick for no reason. He didn't need to die. He could have easily like run and like the doors were closing. He could have just walked through and then they would have had to have time getting the doors open. He could have actually trained Luke himself instead of um, sending him to Yoda as a, as a force ghost. Um, and then the other thing uh, with your, your finale, I would argue that it's basically just the effects from 2001 A Space Odyssey, but sped up instead of set to classical opera music. And it isn't that revolutionary. Also, the idea of equating every twist to each other, like that, I, I, I can't get on board with that. Uh, the idea that because in 1960, Alfred Hitchcock took a book where uh, the main character dies halfway through and then at the end it's revealed that Norman Bates is the killer and he dresses up as a woman. I, I don't see how that has any relevance to the reveal that Darth Vader is Luke's father. I, I don't think you can argue that like just because a twist has been done in a movie before, this one is lessened by that. Well, I mean, you kind of just did the same thing. Uh, I, I've never seen 2001 Space Odyssey. Um, I don't have that benefit. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're equating it to the same way, just saying it's just done a little differently. Um, the same thing. It's just later on. Uh, it's like saying, you know, M. Night Shyamalan stuff, where he does a twist in every movie, you know. Is it lessened because of the Vader thing, or did the Vader thing really kind of set that up? It's a chicken before the egg, egg before the chicken type thing. They're all extremely important to movie canon, but have how many times have you seen one before the other? I mean, how many twist endings like that have you seen to um, uh, before you get to Star Wars? And how many um, space runs have you seen before that? And how well were they done? Um, finally, I think Obi-Wan giving up his life because he knew that Luke could become even better by, tra by training with Yoda than with himself. Um, is one of the noblest sacrifices that you've ever seen. I mean, it. here you, you take, in Luke Skywalker, you take this young kid who obviously wants big things, like he, he's stuck in the middle of nowhere and he hates being there. You, you grasp that within the first 10 minutes of the movie. But you take this kid and then you tell him, not only are we going to grasp big things, you're going to grasp things that are going to save entire planets at a time. How am I going to get you from that to there in what could have been just a singular movie? Okay. I don't, I don't remember if George Lucas was planning on doing the sequel as he was doing star Wars, or if this was the big gamble of a lifetime, like star Wars, the, uh, a new hope was, I designed to be a singular movie. 
due to its overwhelming success that blew anything, any expectations out of the water, they're like, well, we better capitalize on this and do another movie. And that second movie left us on a cliffhanger, not something we uh, hadn't seen before. But that cliffhanger gave us to um, a reason to buy another ticket. So arguably, the reason we're still watching Star Wars movies is because of the first one. Tom, do you have a response? Yeah. Um, I I think you kind of just contradicted yourself there. You're saying that like we went to go see more Star Wars movies because of the first one, and yes, we went to go see Empire because the first because of the first one, but we went to arguably the weakest in the original trilogy, Return of the Jedi, because of the strength of Empire, and we continue to go to the prequel trilogy even though they kind of suck because of Empire. Empire leaves off on a cliffhanger, allows for the series to become what it has today. I, I, I think I'm good. <laughs> closing, uh, closing statement, Robert? The prequels. Yeah, we know how that's going to end because we know who's in the first movie, episode four. I... <laughs> I don't even see why you're bringing, like, oh, man. <laughs> oh, God, brought those. Just, I'm glad so, nobody picked a prequel. Can I just say that? <laughs> I almost did for Mace Windu. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> no, um, there would not be a Star Wars universe without its origin, it's episode four. There would be no terrible prequels. There would be no secondary movie. There'd be no uh, trifecta. There'd be no what well, we're going through the uh, sequels of the original story now. There would be none of it without the original. This dream of George Lucas that came to life for what no uh, that came to life in a way that no one thought could be done, and became the most successful movie of like one of the most successful movies of all time. I don't, I um, I don't know the exact sales or anything. Um, um, I do know that my dad uh, went to see Star Wars three times, and wow. he went to see An Empire Strikes Back one time. I think there is a reason for that. Tom, do you Empire, have an, uh, an, a yeah. uh, closing argument? I do. Empire is a more mature film. I think when it first came out, people were slightly disappointed that it wasn't as exciting as the first film. But it allowed the series to mature, become more adult. It has more adult themes. And it is frequently placed higher than the original on critics' top 100 movies or whatever sorts of lists. I think it is a better film. I think we get a lot more character development and it's a lot more character oriented than the original film, which has a lot of fun world stuff. Like it, it has a lot of fun world building. Whereas the second film centers in on Luke, Leia, Han, uh, Vader, 
You know, it centers in on those characters and allows them to drive the story, which is what you really want out of a Star Wars movie. Okay. Uh, the end of round three. And I just looked at the box office numbers. Force Awakens is the highest grossing Star Wars film right now, but adjusted for inflation, Star Wars A New Hope is the second all-time uh, with $1.5 billion sales, but it actually made $460 million in 1977, which is a shit ton of money for the time. So, um, Robert, your arguments about the Luke's first training as a Jedi, that was a good argument. Leia also having a gun and being a badass female character, I think this is the only film that she is actually in action. Well, she does a little bit in Jedi, Return of the Jedi. Other than that, she's been kind of cast to the side. Um, so those are strong arguments. Uh, Robert, I mean, no, uh, Tom, of course, the I am your father argument, that's that's enough said. That's a strong argument. Yeah, so I had Lando and Yoda, two, two uh, important characters, our fan favorites. You did not argue uh, Boba Fett. That was his introduction. Um, I thought I was waiting for that one. And Robert, I was waiting for you to say that A New Hope actually is the plot of Force Awakens. So it's even, you know, it's been repeated as that. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going with A New Hope as the winner. I thought that the, uh, there's just stronger arguments. Uh, I wanted you to talk about the Han and Leia scene, you know, the, the Carbonite scene a little bit, uh, Tom rather than focusing on the Luke versus Darth Vader. Um, but because Robert broke down the characters, Leia being a badass, Han changing his heart, he went through the character trope, so I didn't get that from your argument. So Robert takes the lead at two. Not one I was expecting to win. <laughs> well, well, honestly, you said up front you are going to do Return of the Jedi, so I wasn't expecting... <laughs> <laughs> You chose the better. You chose the better movie, Robert. Well, I, I, I don't know. I was going back and forth in my head, and like I said, I didn't mean to. Like, I haven't changed in my other answers or anything, but it's just like. No, um, go ahead. if you want to change, go. I mean, it doesn't matter. Long long as you guys I'm, aren't doing the same that, one. That that's the only one I've changed uh, thus far. If you've got um, another another gut feeling, go with it. Long as it's not the same movie. Right. Or episode. All right, so round four, best Marvel movie, best Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. We've had a lot. It could be any, from Iron Man to Doctor Strange, it could be any in between there or any of those. Uh, so, Robert, let's kick it off with you, your opening choice and statement. Uh, this one was tough um, uh, because there's so many amazing movies uh, for the MCU. Um um, my, my other choice would have been the first Thor movie, um, that's just holds a special place in my heart, uh, for the introduction of Hawkeye. But since I wanted to win this actual debate, my, my favorite MCU is, um, Civil War. I think it's, it's a masterpiece. I mean, there, there's, there, there's no other really good word for it. It's, 
it's done something that a lot of thing, a lot of uh, movies, even in the same MCU, couldn't do. Um, it made everyone work like a good Hulk, uh, not good, oh, good God, um, a good Spider-Man, a good Ant-Man, a good Hawkeye. A good uh, Iron Man war machine relationship. It's just, there was nothing bad about it. And part of me wanted to go with Avengers 2. Um, and the only reason I couldn't go with that one was, well, yeah. Um, the only reason I, I decided to get away from that um, was uh, I really hated how they dealt with Quicksilver. Um, so I'm going with my 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 Civil War because there's really nothing that I can pick wrong about. Okay, Tom, your choice. My choice is Iron Man, the first one. Iron Man started the MCU. Without Iron Man, we would never have gotten to Marvel Captain America Civil War. There's just no You know way. he just used the New Hope argument? That he... I know, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. Whatever. Um, <laughs> I I think uh, Iron Man and Rhodey, their relationship is a lot better in Iron Man when it's Terrence Howard. When it's Don Cheadle, I feel like they lose a lot of chemistry, and I don't think they regained it even in Civil War. I still felt that uh, the fake-out death of Rhodey was also like, eh, okay, uh, who really cares? Um, whereas... Their friendship is a lot better in the first Iron Man. You have his relationship with Pepper Potts, which, you know, she's actually in that movie rather than them being like, oh, her contract expired, so they broke up between movies. Um, you have the story focused a lot more on Tony Stark and his internal struggle of making weapons and then deciding that he doesn't want to do that because he's seen what the weapons do in reality. You have the wonderful scenes with him in the cave uh, with that other man and, like, coming to terms with who he is, building building the initial suits. And it feels real. It feels very real and, and, and visceral, even though, like, it is a comic book movie and it is kind of crazy that this sort of thing is happening. Whereas Civil War, some of it feels like, all right, we've gone so far beyond, like, reality and we buy it because we've gone through all of these other movies, but in Iron Man, it feels real. It still feels real. You have one of, I would argue, I know he's overlooked a lot, but I would say Jeff Bridges is one of the MCU's best villains. Um, they're not really known for that. I mean, obviously, it's pro Loki is probably their best villain, but um, I think Jeff Bridges, he had a pretty clear plan. He's going to sell the Iron Man suit to the army. He just needs to rebuild it. Um, you have him as Tony's friend, and he betrays him. You see him you see him go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Tony, whereas in Civil War, the main villain is uh, Baron Zemo, and he um, elaborately manipulates everybody to fight each other but never actually fights anybody. He kind of just you know, at the end of the movie, just kind of sits there and lets them take him. Whereas I think Jeff Bridges is a better villain. He actually suits up. They have a huge battle. There's a great explosion. <laughs> um, and people actually die 
in Iron Man, like Jeff Bridges. Um, whereas in Civil War, as much fun as it was, there really seemed like um, the stakes just aren't really there anymore. Nobody died. The Captain America Iron Man relationship was basically resolved in a letter, like right before the end. Um, we don't actually believe that they're never going to fight together again. So the stakes just aren't there the way they are in the first Iron Man. All right, he already went into his rebuttals. All right, Robert, do you have a counter? Um, well, I mean, it's obvious that an Iron Man movie would focus on Iron Man, uh, where a Civil War has to get a lot more shit in. Um, as far as no consequences, uh, the uh, Superhuman Registration Act ring any bells? Uh, <laughs> how about the death of basically the uh, MTU's version of the UN and the ramifications that had? Um, throughout not only the MCU but the uh, the TV world, Agents of Shield, um, uh, several other uh, several other TV shows. I, I haven't watched like Daredevil and, and Luke Cage and stuff like that. I don't have Netflix, so I don't I, I don't know if it actually affects them, but I know it's affected greatly. Agents of Shield, it's affected. Um, uh, oh hell. Uh. It's affected how many other movies we're going to get, for one thing. Um, I, I think with something like Iron Man, you knew what you were getting. Um, his name was Jensen, by the way. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, I mean... I mean, these are comic books, so of course you have, the, you have what... To expect from them, you have you know Tony Stark's origin that's been told and retold several times from uh, different wars, like everything from he he's been retold from WW2 to uh, Vietnam to uh, in this one took place in Afghanistan type situation. Um, the Civil War has only been done once. Well, it's being done again, but uh, there's a second one going on right now, but. Civil War has been done once. It got done right. It was done, you know, the two primary faces of uh, a company, uh, Captain America and Iron Man, um, being on completely opposite sides and coming to blows on. I mean, um, they even took the comics, the, um, the comics took the SRA, the Superhuman Registration Act, and put them on opposing sides of it, and in this one, it's something even more humanizing. It's a friend. I mean, you've got the Winter Soldier is the reason for the Civil War here. You've got Captain America, his friend, who thinks he can bring him back, versus Iron Man, who finds out he's the guy who killed his parents? Oh, okay. Well, that kind of goes back to that Joker thing, doesn't it? But... What about the film, though? The film, Civil I'm, War? I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, I mean, what, what can you say about it? Like I said, it's, it's a film about one person. They did it incredibly well, and they started the snowball into what would become something later. Uh, the Avengers movie with the the scene at the end of it. Um, I don't disagree uh, that uh, 
Jeff Bridges is a good character. I think you kind of have his origin a little mixed up because um, uh, with the Iron Monger, he, he felt betrayed by Tony Stark because, you know, something they've been doing their entire lives, um, weapon, weapons manufacturing, suddenly he's going to stop doing that. He's not telling anybody why he's doing it. Um, he's costing, you know, a lot of people a lot of money, uh, which is uh, superficial, but still. Um, and then with, like, Civil War, at least, you kind of, you have everybody's viewpoints set in stone, like why they're doing what they're doing, why they're on this side. Um, you know, why is Black Panther with Tony Stark? Because Black Panther's dad was part of that UN that got destroyed by the Winter Soldier. Why is Ant-Man with uh, Captain America? Because Ant-Man looks up to Captain America. There's a lot of questions that uh, Iron Man's 2 and 3 kind of filled out for Tony that um, Iron Man 1 didn't cover. But Civil War is linear, and you have an idea of where it's going, and it has ramifications later on. All right, Tom, final argument? Okay. Um, sorry, I have so many points. <laughs> That's fine. All right, um... I'm going to say it again. I really don't think Civil War, the stakes are there. I mean, they are there, but they're superficial. Iron Man and Captain America are going to get back together in Avengers Infinity Wars. So their, you know, breakup doesn't really matter. Uh, killing characters that we've never met and are like part of a fictional organization if they need to, they'll just bring in more characters who work for that organization to take over. It, it doesn't matter. Um, and Civil War, I think, continues the trend of not really killing anybody important. And, you know, at least they didn't, you know, do a fake out and, like, pretend to kill Nick Fury again. Um, or Coulson. The other thing... Yeah, or Coulson. Sorry. Um, <laughs> the other thing is... Um, the sides that Tony and Captain take in Civil War, they're bent over backwards to take those sides. And so they're not based on who they are, but rather on circumstances that happen around them because the author of the original arc didn't understand politics. So Tony really should be against government registration as a businessman and Captain should be for government registration as a soldier. But because, you know, the author didn't understand that, they bent over backwards, put them on the sides that they're on. And I feel that kind of detracts from who they are as characters. Like, it's kind of contorted them to be something. And granted, they did it as well as they could have in that movie. But, you know, if you had gone the other way, I think it would have been easier. It would have contoured more to who they were up until that point. And I think it would have made for a more interesting movie. Um, uh, also, on Jeff Bridges' character, he was actually scheming against Tony before the events of Iron Man. He set up Tony's kidnapping 
and everything. We find that out like halfway through the movie. Um, so yes, of course he is upset that Tony is no longer, you know, making weapons, but he's already decided to kill him basically before, uh, the events of the movie begin. Like, um, so, you know, I, I don't remember what exactly point you was, did that made for that, but yeah, he, he was the villain the whole time. Robert, final argument? Um, I don't agree with your statement that he didn't understand the politics when he uh, wrote everything. I think it was about breaking roles. Like, the career soldier not wanting to be a government pup. And the businessman understanding that better business comes from being able to get business with a lot of people. So uh, especially since Tony ends up with like a high government office in in the comics, uh, like he ends up like an advisor to the president himself uh, because of his wanting to register and bringing others to register. So there's a reason that he chose to do that because he knew he could get he do better his his he would do better business that way. Okay. Um, and I don't know, like, if I'm going to say this right or not, but it's like, it seems to me that your, your, your final argument was more about why my movie isn't the, the greatest more than why yours was. Um, uh, Granted, I have a little bit more to work with because it's a longer movie and whatnot, but, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, yes, um, uh, Civil War would not have been what it was without uh, Tony, but you're, you're looking at a movie later on um, about the West Avengers that's not going to have Tony in it at all. And I wonder how well that's going to stand. Yeah. All right. Interesting final argument there. Um, so, Tom, good argument on Rhodey and Tony's relationship in the first one with Terrence Howard. Um, good rebuttal on the Jeff Bridges villain uh, motivation. And also your argument about it being realistic and not feeling a superhero movie was also a, a good argument. Uh, Robert, um, talking about the comics is good, but I wanted more about the film. Like, you could, you didn't even bring up Spider-Man. This might be the best interpretation of Spider-Man. Or well, the best... I brought up that it was, like, the most, the best iteration of, of several characters, like I said, between, um, uh, I think I mentioned, uh, uh, Hawkeye and um, Ant-Man. It, it was supposed to be, the thought was that continued work for all the characters. But yeah, I, but I needed, I wanted you to say Spider-Man and and the mentorship between Tony Stark and Spider-Man, and then maybe talk about the airport scene more, or something like that. Or you didn't even mention the airport battle sequence. That, that was, might be the most epic battle we've had in the Marvel Universe yet. So I gotta give the point to Iron Man. Based on their arguments. Okay. 
morning, so we're tied now, right? Two to two, yeah. Yep. All right. No need to wager. Final question. Final question for the winner. Uh, whoever wins this wins the debate. Uh, best Game of Thrones episode. I forgot who went first last. I think Robert, you went first. Yeah, I'll go, uh, yeah, I'll I go think, first. Yeah, Tom go. Um, so I'm choosing the Reigns of Castamere. Uh, this is the infamous Red Wedding episode. It's season three, episode nine. This episode uh, cements for, I think, me and for fans that Game of Thrones is willing to do anything. They are not willing to bail out characters with Yosex Machina if they've made mistakes. And we see that with brutal consequences. No one is safe. We, we kind of had, we kind of understood that with Ned Stark's death. But this one just blows it over the top. The family that we thought was going to win the war, the family that we thought, you know, had it in, that the, the Rob and Catelyn and the entire Stark army die in this episode. That people might not remember. Um, the attack, uh, the takeover of, um, I don't think it was Marine. But Daenerys has taken over another city. Uh, we see Jorah and um, the assassin from the Second Sons that they recast, uh, Dario Naharis. Uh, they break into this city. They have a fun battle. Jon is undercover with the wildlings and refuses to kill an old man. His cover is broken. Uh, Bran wargs into Hodor for the first time. Um but really, I think the best thing... We also get uh, some Arya and the Hound action beforehand. And I think it's it's a very well-done episode. The suspense leading in, the the wedding itself, the just the final scene is the best sequence that Game of Thrones has ever put together. The music, the slow build, the something is wrong, but we're not sure what it is. Uh, we get um, we get uh, Walder Frey. He he gives a this is his main episode. He gives a great performance. He's hilarious when he first comes in. He's like, oh yeah, like you left me for a pair of tits and a firm ass and like shit like that. And it's still funny even though you know what's gonna happen later in the episode, like on rewatch. It is perhaps the most shocking scene that has ever been put on television. It completely changed the game. It brought the show to prominence. Before that, you know, some people had seen it, some people had heard of it, but after that, it became a phenomenon. This is a must-watch TV. This is the show that everyone's talking about, um, and it's just—you've never seen this sort of thing where they kill off the main characters on a TV show who you think is going to win the Game of Thrones, and then keep going. And, you know, so far down the line that, like, it's you're thinking, like, how, like, how could Rob have actually won? And, I don't know, it just works It works beautifully. It's a great episode. I think it's the best. All right. Robert, what is your choice and your opening statement? Um... 
I don't know the name of it. I think you said it at one point, but my the lion my, in the rose. Huh? The lion in the rose. There we go. Um, mine goes to the infamous purple wet. Um, I think. Uh, the season four. Mine, Season four, episode two. <laughs> yeah, I don't have it all memorized, but um, <laughs> I think it gives us the single most satisfying moment in Game of Thrones to date. Um, we've had a lot of big moments, um, but this one was by far the most satisfying. You had for three seasons seen Joffrey be the absolute shit stain that he is and then get everything he ever wanted being a king and every fiber of your being wanted something bad to happen to it and instead of that he gets this glorious awesome birthday party where he gets you know amazing treasures and stuff like that. Hell, he even gets a Ned Stark sword broken down into uh, more swords. But then something amazing happens. Something that doesn't happen a lot in TV anymore. The bad guy gets what's coming to him. He gets he gets the most excruciating, slow death that had occurred at that point. Later on, I'd give that to the, the sister who kept saying shame, but whatever. The most, like I said, the most excruciating, deserved, painful death. I have to admit that uh, because I don't have episodes memorized quite the way Tom does, I don't remember a lot of the other things that happened in the episode. Uh, I'm not even going to lie about it. I'm not going to try to lie about it. Um, I remember that episode for one reason. I remember the Red Wedding for a couple different reasons that you mentioned um, when you were talking about the episode itself, about, you know, this happened and this happened and then the Red Wedding happened. But the only thing that sticks in my head about episode, uh, episode two of season four is this one event, and that's why it's my favorite episode. Okay. Uh, so you're, you're done, right? Okay. Um, first off, it's Joffrey's wedding. Uh, it's not his, his birthday. I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> second off, you don't remember much else happening in that episode because not much else happens in that episode. We see Ramsey being an asshole and, like, you know, chasing somebody with dogs. Um and then it's basically just the wedding. Uh, we also, uh, she, uh, Tyrion like banishes Shay because uh, Cersei has found out about her. But that's literally all that happens in that episode, other than the wedding itself and then the after party where Joffrey dies. Um, Fuck that one. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I had three more points, but I don't remember what they were. <laughs> I would say the Red Wedding is just a better episode. It's more exciting. A lot more happens. Um, the death of... I think it hurts you. It, hurt, it hurts you a lot, whereas watching Joffrey die is cathartic. But 
I think there's an even more cathartic character death, and that's Ramsey. Ramsey was around longer than Joffrey. He was around for four seasons, whereas Joffrey was around three and some change. And Ramsey is somehow worse than Joffrey and gets eaten by dogs, his own dogs. Um, so, you know, that's just lovely. But um, I think that's a, a bigger moment uh, of catharsis. So if you're going for, like, characters getting exactly what they deserve, I would say that that's more... I would, I would have chosen that one over uh, The Purple Wedding. And, you know, when you watch Game of Thrones, what you really want, even though you might not say it that way, is you want to be affected and emotionally involved. And you are, to a certain extent, of course, watching someone you hate die. But I think you're more emotionally involved. I think you're, because you're in so much more pain, when you watch characters that you love that you don't want to die when they are killed and it's in such a shocking way um the other point that i just remembered is um joffrey's death on the show is actually toned down from the book in the book uh joffrey is clawing out his own throat there's blood everywhere it's really gruesome on the show they just have him be poisoned and then like his face is gross but like he's not you know clawing his own throat out Whereas um, the Red Wedding, from book to show, they made more gruesome. They had Rob's wife there, and she's pregnant, and she gets stabbed in the baby. Um, I, I mean, shit. That is, oh my god. So I, I think that was a really cool change that they made for book readers, because book readers knew this was coming, and then it but they didn't know that was going to happen. Whereas uh, Joffrey's murder, you know it's happening. If you're a book reader, you know it's happening. You know how it's happening. They didn't really change it that much. They moved it outside instead of keeping it indoors. Um, but, I mean, you're just kind of like, ooh, like, kill him. Whereas the Red Wedding, you're like, oh, no, they're going to kill them. Um so that's why I think the Reigns of Casting is better. I think it's just a better episode overall. More happens. You're hurt by it. And I think that in a weird masochistic way, that's kind of why you watch the show, is to watch these characters struggling. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a higher-rated episode, I think, on IMDb. And I think it's just better. All right, Robert, what is your rebuttal as to why The Lion and the Rose is the best Game of Thrones episode? Well, first and foremost, who's behind the Red Wedding? If it isn't Joffrey and the Frey, right? The Lannister and the Frey. You're right, I got it wrong. Birthday versus wedding, my bad. Um, however, uh, Joffrey is evil enough to let that, to make that happen, okay? To say, kill everyone. Kill the mother, kill the pregnant wife, kill the boy. Uh, well, the boy, uh, the, Rob Stark needed to die. Uh, Rob Stark, he wasn't the hero we needed. Um, he wasn't the hero I was behind. Um, he was... He was an angry, angry man 
he was he was uh, William Wallace after they killed his wife. Okay, that's all he was. He was an angry boy who who wanted to avenge his father. And you know, I know a few people who are like that. Who 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 would um, if somebody hurt their family, they would do whatever they could. But the truth is, being angry um, and having some power behind you is not going to get you very far, and you know something's going to happen, especially when um, you haven't, you're not doing things correctly. I mean, you're not um, doing things to get you um, more power. You're you, when he was going to marry to a fray, he would have gotten an, more army, and then he would have had like a chance. But he let his emotions take control, and he fell for the girl. And so he broke it off with a phrase, and that's half the reason he's dead. Um, as far as, like I said, I haven't read the book. So um, I don't know why um, it needed to up the... Uh, up the grot uh, the grotesque factor. I think uh, um, having Catelyn die um, later become Lady Snowheart, which we totally haven't gotten, which is deeply upsetting, uh, <laughs> and having Rob die would have been enough. Uh, I, I agree that it's an extra kick in the dick that they killed the wife and the baby by stab to quote you stabbing it in the baby. Uh, <laughs> But, um, gosh. And as far as Ramsey goes, I don't think he has anything to do with these two, but uh, these two particular episodes. Um, uh, so I, I, I'm not going to like try to rebut that. I agree that he got what he deserved, too. Um, but he also wasn't anywhere near the scale of Joffrey. Uh, Joffrey uh, terrorized entire people in, uh, in, his, uh, in the, the Red Keep and the Red City. Um, he terror, uh, he orchestrated the Red Wedding. He, uh, tortured and sed uh, sexually abused, uh, multiple girls, as I recall, with a fucking crossbow. Um, Ramsey is a lot like Joffrey, um, in that the whole sexual torture thing, which is kind of a, now I'm thinking of but, it. Kind but of what a, makes he, your episode? I'm I'm getting there. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm getting. Okay. That's like, sorry. I'm, just, I'm, uh, I'm trying to rebut, so I'm I'm getting there. Okay. Um. Mm -hmm. Uh, like I said, uh, Ramsey got what he deserved. There's no question beyond that. Okay. Joffrey got what he deserved. The reason that it makes it a little better for me is like you kind of managed to do a few other things with his death that Ramsey's death didn't do. Um, Joffrey, uh, with his death, saved Queen Marjorie, which was one of the key reasons he was killed. Um, the grandma, uh, uh, Grandma Tyrell, killed uh, Poison Joffrey to save Marjorie. Okay, you didn't get to save Sansa. Uh, Sansa was just another victim of Ramsay before John grew a pair and decided to go and kill him. Um, and Rob, like I said, was 
he was coming down. Like, he had hit his peak. He had made a few victories, and he was becoming popular. He was the king of the north. And then that anger started to fade away, what brought him to that point. And he started to fall in love again. And he started to kind of come down from what got him to where he was. And as soon as he hit a point where he could be caught, he got caught. He got caught, he got shot, and he got got. Uh, I didn't mean to make it rhyme, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Joffrey was still at that plateau. Like, he had hit a peak, and he was still right at that same level all the way to the end, like cutting the, the book of Tyrion's in half uh, just because he could and because he wanted to be an asshole about it. He was still right there at that level, and bang, he got what he deserved. Rob, not so much. Okay. Final First arguments. Off, um, Joffrey didn't know about the Red Wedding until after it happened. Tywin planned the Red Wedding. Tywin may also have allowed Joffrey to die. He may have known about that plan and allowed it to happen. So I would argue that the Red Wedding um, changed the politics of Westeros a lot more. It changed what was going on. Um, I'm not going to argue with you. I think it's true that Rob deserved to die. And I, I am saying that the writers and the creators should be applauded for taking it to that point. That is the only logical conclusion. It's heartrending. But that is the only logical conclusion to Rob's story. And the fact that they didn't shy away from that is what makes this episode great. Um, but back to what I was saying, Rob's death and the, the destruction of the Starks basically ends the war um, to some extent in Westeros. I mean, it's still going on. There's still like minor factions. But the major like out-and-out war, that was affected by Rob's death. That was ended. Uh, Joffrey's death, we switched to uh, we switched to um, uh, the little boy whose name I forget. Um, Tommen. Yeah, Tommen. So we switched to King Tommen, and now Tywin is is able to control him more. But basically, the Lannisters remain in control. Not a ton has changed um, as far as all of Westeros is concerned. I would say that the death of Tywin far more affects uh, Westeros than the death of Joffrey. Um, and although it is a cathartic moment for the audience, I think the Red Wedding just overall is more impactful. It has more of an influence on the rest of the series as a whole, uh, whereas Joffrey's death, although probably uh, the first, is just one in a series of this villain is dead episodes, uh, rather than the Red Wedding, which is, oh, <laughs> oh my God, any main character, no matter how big, no matter how top build, no matter what we think is going to happen, can die at any moment. No one is safe. No one's going to have an easy route. Our heroes are going to go through hell. Um, I, I, I just kind of think you're a little wrong on the what had. Well, no, like the the impact of the episodes themselves. Um, I think arguably John is the stronger of the Starks, which he is complete he is half Stark. Um, I think he's the stronger of the Starks and that 
he'll be the true threat to anything that's uh, on the Iron Throne um, more than Rob ever would have been. I agree, Rob had a large army, um, but I don't think he could use it as well as John can. Um, Joffrey, Joffrey, if he had been left alive, would have made, would have made, it would have been like Joker sitting on the freaking throne. I hate to keep going back to him, but it's the truth. I mean, you had this sadistic little fuckstick in control of the world, and he didn't care about anybody else but himself and just making himself be, you know, glorifying himself, essentially. Um, it was his death um, led to Tywin's death um, because Tyrion was put on trial for Joffrey, um, which led to Tywin's death, which uh, led to um, Tommen and Marjorie's death, which led to um, freaking uh, Cersei blowing up the place. Uh, it was just one more step towards her eventual insanity that would cause her to blow the uh, sept up. Um, and uh, her ascending to the Iron Throne, which is going to be, I think, the, the, greatest, the greatest thing we'll ever see as far as Game of Thrones goes. Her on the throne and the final battle that's going to happen with that. Um, so as far as impact... Um, Purple Wedding has set off a chain of events that is much greater than the red. Everybody's, everybody's good? Yeah. Okay, there's a lot of a lot of points here. Um, I agree with Robert that it was a satisfying death seeing Joffrey finally go. Um, however, I disagree with you saying that the bad guy doesn't always get what is coming. There's been like Gus Ferrigno in Breaking Bad or whatever Gus in Breaking Bad. What I'm saying is it didn't ha it doesn't happen as often as you'd like it to. Like a lot of the bad guys don't get what's coming to. I think like it always, I think it always happens. Really? We never really see the heroes go. Um, I mean, if you watch Doctor Who, I mean, you you've still got Daleks running across the universe. You've still got one of the original villains running across the universe, and you've had fourteen different heroes go through that. Um, so and. The tenth and eleventh Doctor were particularly hard to go let go. So, um, but they never think, killed James Bond. They never, but they finally killed his his mentor in Skyfall. That's why people like Skyfall so much. They killed James Bond a long time ago. But <laughs> so, anyways, um, Tom's arguments. He talked more about the episode, and that's what I was looking for, more about the episode and why. The only argument that Robert had was Joffrey's death. He couldn't go into the details of the episode. Uh, whereas Tom laid out the whole episode for us and the ramifications and the Frey family, the Bran meeting Hodor for the first time, Arya and the Hound, 
Um, so I got to go with Reigns of Castamir as the the winner. Sorry, Woo. man. <laughs> you okay? You okay. <laughs> I, you look like part of you died inside. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't agree with it, but that's fine. Right. I, uh, yeah. Tom wins the first ever nerd debate, three to two. That was a well fought, well debated match, though. I will yeah. say. I think that was yeah, a that very. Was. Shit. That was a very nice deep job. episode. Which is why you're taking the loss so hard, Robert. <laughs> you alright? Yeah, I'm good. You pissed at me? No. Alright. Anyway, um, shoot. Uh, <laughs> good job, Tom. And, uh,. Who goes next week? Dude, you too. You that was that was really hard. <laughs> uh, I think it's Tom's turn next week. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I'm gonna do though. Uh so uh yeah, thank you for having me on on Monday, like always. Uh I have to go get something down to my uh apartment people and maybe go vote. So uh I voted guys, on Saturday. I, I mailed I in my vote. I don't know how long this thing's open, so uh, I think it's open until five. I almost left it to the fans to decide who wins this. Uh, wait, no. <laughs> uh, Did I get anyway. it wrong? Let let me know, people. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that was uh, that's cool, and uh, so I'll uh, I'll see you. Uh, Next week. All right, man. Hopefully. Hopefully you're not holding the grudge. Take it easy, guys. All right, Robert. Thanks for being on. So, thanks for being on, man. Dude, that was well debated. <laughs> Let me know if I got it wrong. Uh, give me a shout-out at Poly Pictures on Twitter. Follow us, Nerd Files, on iTunes, Facebook, whatever platform we're on. Uh, keep us in your digital world. Appreciate it. Um, Follow uh, us at, at Poly Pictures for Dan and uh, at Tom Vohasic for me. Uh, we're also on YouTube. It's the same as our Twitter, but, you know. I have a feeling this will not be the last debate we have on this show. After... No, this was this was awesome. This took up, like, a really long time. Yeah, it did. But it's it was I think it, was, it went pretty deep, nerd-wise, and that's what we wanted, so. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening. We should, Check it out. Maybe we should do more of these. Like we should. All right. Peace out. Peace out.